morning. Oh, that's the kind of energy I needed. Thank you. Oh my gosh, it is such a great, great morning. How are you? What have you been up to? Sing more on this on this podcast. I'm gonna start putting a scene. hell no. Oh my god, I loved it so much. <laughs> um, I'm good. I'm doing great. I'm still kind of like reeling like kind of on this high from doing all these interviews we had we had regina yesterday and then today to have omar or our next guest we're we're cooking i know i'm just like i really hope a lot of people listen to this but you know if they don't i am still having the time of my life because i this is all very info like just helpful information and I, i don't know i just feel leaving like like I learned something today, right? So I right. think well, that's I, the point, it, right? Yeah, it, it, it is, right? That is the point. Yeah, but that is, <laughs> there is a point to this podcast, right? Okay, yeah. I just want to make sure. Let's just circle back. Um, um, yeah. So we're um, how's Charleston? How's Charleston doing today? Charleston's doing much better today now that the bridge run is over. Uh, Wonderful. The Cooper Bridge Run is, has finished, and it seems that people have started to kind of you know, leave, go back to their place of living and not crowding our streets, which is okay. And I'm so excited. I saw you posted a, a picture of your shoes that you're wearing in Dancing with the Stars, which is yes. going to be coming up very soon. I cannot believe you're doing this. I'm so excited I'm for you. Me either, Todd. Me either. <laughs> but I... I am very excited. I've actually been wearing them around because you got to break them in oh, yeah. um, before you start actually doing any dancing. And I feel so ridiculous, but <laughs> they've also become my favorite shoes. Please tell so, me you're cooking in them and, and like running oh, errands and like whatever, oh, totally. like going to a business meeting in character shoes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they lo- everybody's just like, oh, you, you seem to be on your way to somewhere fancy. And I'm like, always. <laughs> Uh, I've got to be able to what dance at any <laughs> at a moment's notice. I've got to get the tap on. Yeah, I you know the next kind of phase is to figure out which one I'm gonna actually which dance it's gonna be. So I'm gonna need your help. I think you should do the the jive. And speaking of jiving, let's move on to our guest who we had a wonderful interview with him. His name is Omar oh, so Torres. Great. Can you tell us a little bit about Omar Torres? Oh, yes. Okay, so Omar is my new therapist. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Omar Torres is a licensed clinical social worker based in New York City. He's been working in the mental health field for 10 years and started his practice three years ago. He volunteers for and is on the board of Camp Brave Trails, an LGBTQ plus youth leadership camp. He has also worked with BuzzFeed and PBS on developing mental health content and is co-host on Vice's docuseries, In My Own World, um, which I've seen and it's amazing. So, I mean, he's just... He knows what he's talking about. To me, he's Without. like he's like a modern therapist. He's like he's like yes. a breath of fresh air. You know what I mean? You yes, know what I mean? he's he's good looking. He's fun to, to listen to. And so, you know, without any further ado, we introduce Omar Torres. Hello, Omar. Good. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor. How are you doing this morning? Um, I'm doing all right. Much better now that I'm having some coffee. Not to sound like a cliche, but it does <laughs> It does help. It does have uh, it some, some properties that can make the mornings <laughs> yeah. better. So I also think that the psychological, it's like just like sipping on something warm and like sweet. Like I think all of that also plays into a role. Maybe even more so than the caffeine, to be honest it with you. It might be a little psychosomatic because, yeah, you know. <laughs> 
I like just the smell of it. Sometimes I can't, if I smell somebody else cooking or cooking, making coffee, I'm like, I need to get up. Like I'm the laziest (laughs) mofo ever. So, um, yeah, you know, you all need your fix some way or another. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. We're obviously big fans. Todd and Omar have known each other for a while, so. About like, probably like, I don't want to say like, um, close to 10, no, nearly eight years. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. How long has it been since you lived in New York? Four years. Yeah. Okay. Really? That recently? I don't know why I thought you were in LA like all the time. Well, I still have my place there, so I I jump back and forth and buy Coastal. Oh, yes. Oh, fancy. Such a performer. (laughs) He's super important. I don't know if you know. Very important. Did you know? Um, So, yeah, since y'all kind of know each other, I would love to know a little bit more about yourself or about you before you decided to embark on your therapy journey. Yeah. So, I like to think of my growing up origin story as uh, having like two parts to it. So the first part was um, like as a young child, I grew up uh, in Washington Heights, New York. So it was me, my parents and my older brother. And my, you know, elementary school years was very much um, dictated by like life in New York City, like taking the subway and stuff like that. Right. And then once my sister was born, my parents wanted like a house and a yard and like, you know, they wanted that. They were like, this apartment's not going to work anymore. Yeah. So, so then we moved um, to uh, New Jersey, uh, to a suburb, not too far outside of New York, um, only about like four, 30, 40 minutes outside of New York. And, um, and that's where I spent like the rest of my like adolescence and young adulthood. And eventually went to grad school after grad school, made my way back to New York. So I've always been like around (laughs) this area, pretty much kind of like a townie. If you will, <laughs> I wouldn't call you that. But, you know. Maybe not that. You'd be a regional superstar. Oh, I like that. Yes. I'm going to go with that. Yeah, for sure. Omar, what made you decide to go into mental health? Was it like your upbringing or your experiences? Like, what made you decide to become a therapist? Yeah. So, <clears throat> um, one relatively odd thing. Well, there's many odd things about me. One of them is that. I've wanted to be a therapist since I was about five. Oh my gosh, I love that. And I have very distinct memories of my mom taking me to school. We'd show up early, so we'd like hang out before pickup. And she would just like ask me, obviously, you know, like questions that she would ask a five-year-old, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I would say, I want to be a psychologist. I would say, I want to be a psychologist. So I was, you know, that. I didn't (laughs) didn't go through puberty yet. Yes, yeah. Much higher octave. Um, And... uh, And folks, rightfully so, would ask me, like, how at five did you even know what a therapist was, what a psychologist was? And I have been racking my brains trying to figure out, like, did I see something on TV? What, like, what was it? I have no idea where I got that idea from. No idea. your parents don't even have any clue. No. They were just as surprised. They were just as surprised. What I did know was that I was the kid growing up in my class and amongst my friends that friends would go to for help or for advice or to like share a secret that they knew like I wouldn't say anything. They knew they could come to me, you know, gossip or whatever and that it would stay with me. You're a vault. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was the vault. So 
somehow I made the connection between those experiences of like, oh, people like to share really intimate details with me and people are, this may sound odd, people are okay with being sad around me and talking about being sad to me. And somehow I was like, okay, I can make this into a career. <laughs> somehow I will Somehow, make this. even though I already decided I was going to be a psychologist. Yeah, 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 exactly. But I'll see if I can work this into that. But I'll see, yeah, if I could squeeze that in. And so, yeah, and I think unconsciously my desire to go into mental health had a lot to do with my own stuff, right? My own identity. At a very young age, I knew that I... I didn't have the language for it. I knew I was gay. I just didn't know that that's what it was called. And I knew, okay, I cannot share this with anybody. Like I need to keep this to myself. So that I am sure also played a role in like, oh, I'd really love to understand human psychology and human behavior because I'm confused about what's going on with me internally. Like none of this is making sense. So maybe in my quest to understand how other people work, I will understand how I work was sort of like the more that I think about it is what I think that that's what I think the driving force really was at a very early age. Well, that's amazing. I mean, that's like, I feel like maybe you were reincarnated or something and were already a therapist in a, in a past life and you just came out like, okay, I'm here yeah. again, ready Let's do to, this. to help Let's you guys. try this again. Also, yeah. help me too. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it might sound a little like woo-woo, but whenever someone refers to it as a calling, it, that like stirs something up in me when people say, oh, this was a calling. I'm like, yeah, yes, actually. And it sounds a little, again, like superhero movie type of thing, but like, it, it really does feel like, oh, there's nothing else I want to do and there's nothing else I could do. So yeah, it's this or bust. Well, that's awesome. That means that you, you know, love what you do. So yeah. Oh, yeah. there's at least that, even if you don't figure out all the other stuff going on in your head, you at least know right. what that is. Um, so Todd informed me that you, um, and I have now watched it, uh, were on this show called In My Own World. Yes. Um, which for our listeners is, what, what channel is it on again? Was it on Netflix? Some Vice. Vice, but it, I think I watched it on um, Hulu. Either way, it's on Vice, um, and it's about basically different people that are a little different yeah and i'm gonna let you take over the reins and explain kind of what this show is about we both watched about. it and, 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 and yeah. how do you get involved and and yeah how on earth you maintain composure through <laughs> any of it so you know let's just start with the Such a, <clears throat> great questions laura um <laughs> So, like you said, the show's called In My Own World, and it's a, a human interest docu-series. That's how, like, you know, it was presented to me when they first approached me to do it. And basically, each episode focuses on, like, a fringe community of people. So, a group of folks that the average person might think is, like, really bizarre, really out there. So, for example... I worked with someone who identified as a vampire and there is a huge vampire community in New York and that episode focused on, so what does that even mean, right? Are you running around drinking people's blood? Can you like go outside during the day? So 
it demystifies and humanizes these individuals as well. My other co-hosts had a time traveler as well as a zombie apocalypse preparer. So, you know, when we're talking fringe, we're talking fringe. Yeah, like, like, you know, out, out there. Out, yes, out there. In an attempt, again, to sort of show them as just being like human beings, right? Trying to cope with the everyday stressors of life or stressors, uh, you know, from their own past and stuff like that. And it was also in an attempt to kind of like help them integrate these identities and have it not feel as like conflicting internally. The way they found me was there were a few BuzzFeed videos I did, like I want to say four, four or five years ago that did relatively well. By no means did it go viral or anything like that, but somehow this producer in her research on like therapists in New York found me through those BuzzFeed videos and then just like emailed me one day cool. and said like, hey, would you be interested in a project we're working on? We can't say much yet. And so that's how it all started. And I would just go through each round of interviews and then in the next round, the next round. And every time an interview would end, I'd be like, okay, that was probably the last one. I'm sure I didn't make it to the next round. And that was me the whole time until, <laughs> until I got the call saying, you got the job. And even then I was like, I'm sure they'll change their minds That's afterwards. <laughs> no way. I like, I'm even like on set going, there, there's no way this will They're air. Like each time, each time, yeah. <laughs> each time, like, this isn't going to happen. You had some so, serious um, imposter syndrome. Oh, <laughs> big time, big time. So uh, yeah, so that's how they found me, and that's how I got connected. Yeah, to the project. I have a couple things to ask about that. What did you approach um, the, this fringe, the, the, these people with these like you know quote unquote um, bizarre lifestyles? Did you approach it the same way you would any other client? And also, second part of that question is: Do you ever take on any of your patients or clients' pain? Do you consider yourself somewhat of an empath? Because yeah. you were talking about woo woo <laughs> stuff earlier. I just want to kind of yeah yeah so. The approach was similar, but it wasn't, it, it couldn't be the same, right? So the way I approach the clients is always, you're telling me what's up. Like you are the expert on you and I am not here to tell you what I think is best for you. I'm here to help you understand like yourself and I'm here to help you gain more trust in yourself. So that way you can decide what's best for you, right? And I'm sort of here to, say things like, you said you wanted a partner, but every time you go out on a first date, you pick up on something relatively harmless and you sort of toss them to the side, right? Like there, there's something isn't matching up, something's not lining up. So I'm here to sort of like remind folks, remember what your values are, remember like what you're going for. And if your behavior sort of, you know, doesn't sync up with that, I'm here to say like, mm, what what's going on here? Because you said you wanted this thing, but you're actions are communicating mm -hmm. something else right so let's talk about that but because this was obviously filmed my approach you know it was this was new for me I'd never done anything like this before so it was a really good lesson in adaptability and learning how to shift and course correct like on your toes like in real time because typically you know the work is me and a client in my office the doors are closed. It's very quiet. And we're just chatting. No they different. were so right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. On any part. <laughs> <Yeah, on laughs> <anyways. right. laughs> and 
there are instances during filming where there was one day where my mic wasn't working and they legit interrupted me about five times during the, during like one, like three minute conversation that I was having because they just could not get the technology to work. And so that's like really jarring because when I'm like in it, when I'm like super present and super focused, I kind of like, um, it's kind of like blacking out a little you're, bit. You're, it's like, called being in the zone. It's in like the zone, little, yeah. in the flow, right. So when I would get interrupted and they would say, hey, can you say that again? I'd be like, honestly, I kind of don't remember what I just yeah, said. Yeah, could you tell to me be what I said? <laughs> right, because I was just so in it. So in some ways, yes, it was, my approach was very similar, if not the same. And in other ways, I had to course correct just because of the setting. It asked for me to sort of switch up the way I would normally do some things. Eternus is all about you. Eternus Life Coaching is all about partnering with clients in a thought-provoking and creative process that inspires them to maximize their personal and professional potential. Eternus believes in making your dreams and goals a reality, and their coaches know just how to do that. Whether you're just starting out or looking to bolster your current transformation, they have you covered. Leveraged by the International Coaching Federation and founded by Chris Wingator, Eternus coaches develop and maintain an effective coaching plan with attainable results. Eternus offers flexible plans and rates to allow all people to benefit from this rewarding creative process. So don't hesitate. If you want to unlock your full potential, begin your journey with Eternus Coaching today. Visit www.eternuslife.com and let Eternus help you manage progress and maintain accountability in achieving your highest potential. Follow them on Instagram and Twitter at Eternus Life. This show, the one thing that I have to say and like just commend you and all the other hosts is that it's not like they sit down with these people and they go, look, you are not a vampire. Okay. Like they don't even really address that. It's like, in what ways is this affecting, you know, you? Like I remember with uh, like the the wolf one where people thought they were wolves or, you know, they, they are wolves in their minds. This woman's trying to step down as like the mother wolf and she's having trouble with that. And then, you know, with the prepper, he's making his kids do prepping on the weekends and the therapists are so understanding. They're like, well, listen, you know, we know you love prepping, but maybe (laughs) your children should do some childlike activities during the weekend. So I think that really reflected how good of like therapists y'all were on the show because you know if it was me obviously I'm not a therapist but I would have been like let's talk about how this came about right Right. (laughs) so I do recommend people to go see it because it was really I mean kind of eye-opening that this even existed but also that it's handled so well by you guys so congratulations on that thank you so much but yeah back to Todd's question about essentially do you feel like you know when you're doing this work that you kind of have you take on the the pain and and stuff that other people are dealing with and and do you consider yourself kind of an empath or is that a little too woo woo yeah I I so I don't I've never thought of myself as an empath I I do consider myself empathic um I don't experience taking on a client's pain. The best way I could describe it is that I feel it alongside them. I feel it with them. 
I don't take it on. I don't take ownership over a client's feelings or what they're experiencing, but I access a part of myself that understands like, oh yeah, I, I get how this could feel and I get why you feel this way. And I want to feel it with you like together as a team, as opposed to taking it on myself. So it feels, it feels more collaborative. I think a lot of this has to do with doing this work for a long time or, you know, mm-hmm. for long enough where I know how to create a little bit of distance between myself and the client and what they're feeling, because you run the risk of then making the session or the work about you mm-hmm. if you take it on too much. Yeah. Right. Um, so it, it's, uh, it's in an attempt to make sure that they stay at the center of the work. Yeah. Cause you don't want to just start like being, Oh my God, the same thing happened to me the other day. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which there is a, there is like a masterful way of expressing that while still keeping them at the center. But yes, you don't want to suddenly you don't necessarily want to start bursting into tears and going, well, let me tell you about my day yesterday because the same thing happened and you won't believe it. Like that you want to try and avoid as much as possible as opposed to, oh, you know what? That happened to me too. I know how that might make you feel. Tell me more about what was going on for you. So there's never never been really a session where where the client leaves and you're just kind of like, I need a minute. Oh my gosh, yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah, that, that often happens when a client, it's like a really good workout. When you know shortly after exercising or, do, or engaging in any physical activity, you know like, ooh, I'm gonna be sore tomorrow. Like that was a good workout. It's like that where a client will leave a session and I'll go, ooh, we just did some work. Like, ooh, that was work. That was a really good session. We, we were diving in deep, like there was no, we just like went right for it. And it feels exhausting, but in a, in an exhilarating way, like, wow, I am tired, but also like pumped at the right. same time. You know what I mean? It's like really weird. Well, you're you just like, flow, so you're right. Exactly. The runner's and high. <laughs> the runner's high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's one of those instances where the client and the therapist are on the same page and they're just like in sync and like just doing the work together and really touching on some hard or heavy um, stuff, um, just like really intimate stuff. And, and yeah, so it, it, those are the moments when I'm like, holy moly, that is, I need a second. Like I need a minute to just sort of. How do you deal with that? Sorry, sorry, to, sorry to harp on this, but how do you deal with that when you have another client walking in the door, when that client leaves and you're like, holy shit. And then you, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yeah. So uh, I give myself 15 minutes, at least 10 to 15 minutes in between sessions. Oh, okay. For that very reason to like you know, also like go to the bathroom, you know, get some water, you know, stuff like that. But I will give myself, yes, exactly. I will give myself at least 10 minutes. And if I really need to, I will just sit in my chair and just kind of like breathe and just collect my thoughts and then get myself centered and ready for the next patient. That's awesome. awesome. I mean, like, I, I don't think, I would think it would take me a little bit longer than 10, 10 or 15 minutes. So you seem to have <laughs> really kind of found a good, uh, a good, <laughs> you, you've perfected this, clearly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I found a good rhythm. And also at the end of the day, 
I, I will give myself at least an hour, usually at the end of a work day where I am not talking or listening to anybody. I'm like oh, wow. either listening to music or reading, but I'm definitely not talking. And I'm just sort of letting my brain like recalibrate and just sort of like get back into day-to-day mindset. What, like, what am I going to have for dinner? Do I need to get groceries? Like stuff like that. Um, where the stakes are much, much lower. Um, And so usually, again, like an hour at the end of the day is what I need to like process everything that happened. I've always wanted to ask a a therapist this. What is it like being in a relationship as a therapist? Is your partner ever like, don't try that therapy shit on me? You know, does that happen? (laughs) Don't therapize me. Don't therapize me. Don't you dare therapize me. Yeah, therapization. So what is it like to be in a relationship with a therapist? I mean, it is, it's perfect. I have no insecurities. <laughs> I handle every situation perfectly. And my training always comes in exactly when I need it. And I do it all splendidly. No. And it's, so humble. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> I am a pain in the ass, just like everyone's a pain <laughs> in the ass. It's normal, right? Like I, there are things about me that are great and awesome. And there are things about dating a therapist that I think from like feedback that I've gotten is like wonderful, right? So I'm much more, I'm much more open to having like, I don't know, like certain kinds of conversations and I'm much Mm -hmm. more open to like conflict resolution. And I, and I know, okay, if I roll my eyes, that's not going to help. So I'm like, do not roll your eyes. Right. So there are things like that. Sure. That I am mindful of and that, is it's stuff that's like pretty easy for me to recall and there's like a lot more conversations that I feel more open to because I'm better at not personalizing it so quickly again not every time but for the most part I find that to be the case but yeah there are definitely instances where I will get you know don't don't treat me like one of your clients and I'm like no, I'm just like talking to you. This is just <laughs> who I am. I'm just like trying to speak to you in a way that I think will help with like de-escalation. And so, you know, if if I hear a lot of, because it's not like, you know, I'm not sitting here with a partner going, so how does that make you feel? Like, it's not like that. You know what I mean? So, um, it, it, but I do borrow from the training that I've that I've gotten. And sometimes it comes across as like, you're there being therapized when really I'm like, no, this is just like uh, researched ways of <laughs> managing an argument yeah. that have been proven to work. <laughs> and I, you know, that kind of like leads me to, to wonder, do you, do you feel like that you're able to kind of see, let's say red flags in another person, not necessarily like that they're like deal breakers, but just right. kind of red flags more easier than the the average bear and does it ever do you ever feel like sometimes the advice you give in therapy kind of conflicts with you know kind of what you wanted what you do in your personal life what I do in my personal life yeah so the first question red flags so I get this question a a lot like do you notice um red flags or do you like do you pick up on things quicker than the average person and honestly I don't I I think we all pick up on red flags quickly. I think I'm better at trusting myself and trusting Omar, if you are noticing this, take it seriously. 
where what I've noticed most often are folks noticing the red flag and then saying, well, it's probably not that bad. Mm. Well, don't be so picky. Mm. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure that'll calm down in a couple of years. I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, that they, they won't be like that. that. They'll spend some time with me. I'll help them work through it or whatever. I'll change them. Blah, 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 them. blah, blah. I can fix them. I can fix that. They don't want kids. They hate kids. But you know what? Once they spend a few oh months God. with my niece, they're going to be obsessed. And then finally, they'll want kids just like me. Like, that is what I notice happening more often. Um, and so I think I'm better at taking it seriously and understanding, like, Omar, you can trust your instincts on this. You can trust that like what you're seeing and hearing and feeling is, is accurate. So at that point, I have to ask myself, do you need more information or do you need to sort of call it right now? And do you right. feel like you ever, I mean, we're, you're human. I'm assuming you make mistakes, but do you ever look All back on, on, on <laughs> some of your relationships? And you're like, I knew better. <laughs> oh my god yeah oh my god <laughs> all the time <laughs> all the time I'm like what the hell was I thinking or just like not necessarily what the hell was I thinking it's more like oh there's that thing you do there's mm -hmm. that thing that you do where you justify or excuse things or there's that thing that you do where you like see the best in mm -hmm. another person and one time my therapist clocked it so well where he, he goes, you know, part of your job is to see the potential in other people. And you are very good at that, which is why you're good at your job, but you are doing it in dating as well. And that you need to stop doing because you are not on the clock when you're dating. So you need to cut that shit out when it comes to your personal life. Professionally, yes see the best in people, see their potential, help them cultivate that stuff and cultivate those like great parts of themselves. But when it comes to dating, you need to be way more discerning because it's like bleeding into your love life. And it's causing you to make certain decisions that you end up like not feeling really good about. Todd and I so, kind of talked yeah. about this. We're both pretty bad about, I don't want to say bad, but it, the, we kind of both put our own empathy and and everything on other people and expect them to be yeah think the same way we do um and yeah. they all don't and you know and that's one of the things you know you mentioned are you good or you asked are you good at sort of like taking your own advice and I've gotten much better right I've definitely gotten much better there's certainly room for improvement but I've gotten better especially when it comes to dating at asking myself are you dating the person or are you dating the idealized version you've created in your head Ooh, and what are drop. the differences my drop i know drop. i mean that it's like you know the, i always see these memes and stuff i mean i wouldn't call them memes but little words of wisdom if you will that's like stop dating somebody for their potential and date them for who right. they are right and it's hard Cause oh, you're like, yeah. no, like it's the same with the kids thing. It's almost like, no, no. See, you'll see how great and, and motivated I am. And you're going to like want to <laughs> yeah. rise to the occasion. Right. And, and it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. Well, Omar, what do you think has been the most common issue that you've seen across the board? Like if you were going to make a blanket statement that you, that about, you know, obviously every single client is different, but what would be the, 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 th the through line? Two things come up for me 
immediately. One is identity. One is asking and answering the question, who am I, right? And, and why? And that can be, that can be pretty existential, like very like meaning of life. Why am I on this earth sort of thing? And it could also be as not as complex, but still as important as like, who do I love and why do I love the person or the type of individuals that I do? And, and all of that relates to like identity and who and how they see themselves because that impacts the way we sort of like navigate the world. And the other thing too, is that I notice a lot of folks struggling with, and this is sort of connected to my earlier point of trusting themselves, not just in terms of dating, but even in terms of like managing hard things. So, you know, a lot of folks for good reason, you know, and, and me too, right? Like I, I'm, I can be pretty risk adverse and like avoidant of taking certain risks because I'm like, well, if that doesn't go well, I will be devastated. I will fall apart. So you know what? Forget it. I'm not going to do that. Where in reality, a lot of the work that I do is reminding clients, no, no, no. You've done hard things before. You, you do heal. You do recover. Don't forget that, right? Yeah. So sure, do you know a risk analysis. Sure. Make sure that you're like not putting yourself in danger. Make sure that you're not putting yourself in harm's way. Of course, of course, of course. But you know, risk is inherent in living, right? It's it's welcome to the human experience. You're not gonna avoid risk. So helping clients or, or what I see a lot of are folks that do not trust that they can kind of like make it out the other end okay. I think that's like, a, you know, not to make it all about me, but um, <laughs> I think that that's a, a really, that hit kind of hard for me because I, I'm in therapy. I love therapy. Ooh. Got into it uh, kind of while I was going through a divorce and was pregnant at the time. So I didn't have a lot of the same outlets that some people mm, can yeah. use. So um, therapy was my my safe space. And I think that was one of the biggest things that I str struggled with. And I still, I still can't thank my therapist enough for kind of giving me this perspective of like, not necessarily... You it was you can do hard things, but also your biggest fears of what's going to happen. Like you're going to see that you are going to live through that. Like that right. you will come on. Like it, you, the hardest things that even just going through the divorce of like, am I ever? Am how am I going to be a single mom? Like how is that even mm -hmm. going to work? And and she's just like, you know, it, it does, and it does all it the does. time, right? For for right. tons of people across the world, and you are even more equipped than and but people need to hear that right people. that's why we have therapists because pe we need to hear that sometimes you know because we can't see it for ourselves right right talk about identity i mean i know that you you counsel a good amount of people in the lgbtq community <laughs> do you kind of notice any glaring differences in the issues you discuss with them versus your straight patients or do you feel like it's a lot of similar tied in kind of issues yeah, the, um, definitely the latter. It's a lot of similar issues. The main difference, that, that, and perhaps the most important difference, is that with my straight clients, their identity doesn't make life harder. 
right? So straight people also have to reckon with their identity. Who are they, their values, expectation that like the world puts on them, expectations that maybe families put on them. And all of that does revolve around identity and identity formation and just sort of like being true to yourself, right? However, with my LGBTQ clients, life is, <laughs> life is harder for them because of that truth, right? Because they identify as queer or gay or trans, uh, life is sort of filled with a lot more challenges and unique challenges to that experience. Um, so it's, it's about, it's not so much about like what we talk about that is different, but the ways in which the world uh, interacts with them, that is the difference. You know, my straight clients, let's say there's a lawyer and, and they're like, you know what? I've always actually wanted to be a singer. That's what I've always wanted to do, but I was too afraid because, you know, my dad was a lawyer and my, you know, aunt was a lawyer and so on and so on, you know, and that, that's like, yes, it's, it's difficult to sort of reckon with that, but there aren't like laws in place to make singing harder. You know yeah. what I mean? Or to like live your life as a singer. There aren't protests, you know, against singers and people aren't saying you're going to go to hell for wanting mm -hmm. to be a singer. So, you know, the struggle is similar in being authentic to yourself, but the way the world reacts to you, that is, that is the main, if not most important difference between my queer clients and my straight clients. And do you see that there is a lot of shame around that um around around i don't know people coming to terms with who they are because of the uh pressures put on by their families oh yeah there's a ton of shame there's a ton of like fear of letting people down too fear yeah. of disappointing folks and you know that that's a lot of that does tie back to what i was saying earlier about helping clients trust themselves a little mm -hmm. bit more and me included right I am so afraid of disappointing people. And that is something that I notice in a lot of us. And, you know, over time, that fear for me and for a lot of my clients has not gone away. What we realize, however, is that like, oh, it's never quite as bad as we think it's going to be. And even if it is bad, even if the experience is real, really crappy we actually end up like being okay we recover we you know maybe we cry maybe we scream and yell but eventually we recover and we're okay and in fact we're the better for it you learn afterwards. Right. yeah i mean did you did you have a hard time coming out were your were your was your family supportive so i really lucked out i'm one of the super duper lucky ones because um my mom basically told me I was <laughs> she, you're like I want to be a psychologist she's like no I'm sorry you're gay you're that, gay actually, actually what you're it is. gay yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah it was it was really sweet one day my mom and I were talking and at the time I was dating my very first boyfriend so I was in I was like 22 or 23 I don't know 22 23 and she asked me if I was dating anybody and I said yes period right and in my head I thought okay this is a good time to follow that up with and his name is blah blah right but before I could do that 
she interrupted and goes, well, you can bring him over anytime you want. Oh, my gosh. And that was it. That's so what I'm, makes me kind of tear up. Yeah, so it, was, it was really lovely. I'm so, so lucky because I know how rare that experience is, especially for, you know, a Latin person, a person of color, it, it's, you know, I don't hear a lot of experiences like that. I'm hearing them more and more, which is hopeful and really touching. But yeah, I, I had it really good in terms of my family. Now, coming out to myself, that was harder. Oh, that was yeah. harder. Yeah, just sort of like, accepting it as this is it like this is the truth like this isn't going anywhere this isn't there, there's nothing to solve here there's nothing to figure out here this just is who you are and then being comfortable living as a gay man meaning right like not code switching um if someone asks I'm me sorry, what's uh, code switching oh sorry so code switching is a term that is mostly used for people of color whenever they feel like they enter a space and they have to behave a certain way. So for example, for gay men, whenever, whenever the delivery man comes to like deliver my food or drop off a package, whatever, I will deepen my voice oh. while speaking to them. And I'll say like, thank you. You know what I mean? Like I will, I'm I will so like, I'm angry. using, yeah, exactly. I'll, I'm using air quotes, but I'll like butch it up. And, and not just then, in other spaces too, where I feel like, I'm surrounded mostly by straight dudes. I will be much more mindful of like, you know, of not being super effeminate or whatever. Again, that's I've gotten much better at that now, but the urge is still there. And so I have to clock it and be like, no, don't do that. Don't do that. So that, that was in terms of like coming out and being true to myself, that was really, really difficult. And I think it's still part of um, something that I'm like figuring out and trying to sort of like clock and not critique as like this is bad you need to stop but be more curious about like oh why are you still doing that like what what about the situation asked for that and do you think like maybe next time you could just not do that and see what happens and so that's how like that process works for me wow i've never heard that term but i feel like i could probably apply it to you know some other situations outside of that, I mean, I, I can definitely relate as far as, you know, when I'm in like business mode at my job, it's like, and then I realize I'm in a room full of guys, you know, right. when I work with mostly right. dudes to just be like, okay, don't be the hysterical woman that right. they want you to be like that they're right. expecting. So you got to just be, I'm like, okay, we're all business. This is, I'm, I'm right. not going to cry. I don't even cry. I don't even know what you're talking about. Yep. I don't know. I've never heard of that word before in my life. But <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or there's like a particular way that you'll talk. There's a tone that you'll use. There's a way that you'll stand. There's a way that like you'll take up space or not take up space. Maybe you make yourself smaller, right? All these instances of it's like in an attempt to, just navigate a situation and experience like as seamlessly as possible. I, I want to try and ruffle as little feathers yeah. as possible, or I, I, I can't be found out. So, because that will be too risky. I might put myself in danger. I might put my career in danger, right? The list goes on and on. So um, there are ways in which we sort of like 
uh, I guess like adapt is the best way that I could say it. Although, you know, adapting uh, evolutionarily speaking is like a good thing. Whereas this is a little less, depending on the situation, right? Um, and depending on the circumstances, like I don't need to lower my voice to speak to. Yeah, it's kind of a coping. It's kind of like a coping thing. Right. So just a little little bit, get a little personal. So does does your sexuality kind of ever become uh, an issue with your clients, whether that's Mm -hmm. that they're, you know, hesitant um, or that that's like what they want for sure as as another uh, gay therapist? What are your kind of thoughts on that? Yeah, I so my sample size like my clients probably aren't a good representation of how people would feel because if you're coming to me uh you're absolutely right lauren they're either coming to me because they themselves identify as queer or gay right and they're like okay you omar will get it there are things i won't have to explain to omar about the queer experience uh that i would have to explain to a straight therapist so i'm going to him specifically for that um and or they just sort of know right away um one of the questions that i will sometimes ask straight clients is how do they feel or what is it like for them to sit across the room with a gay therapist right like because that is that is a dynamic there's there's difference in that right and uh, And I think it's important to acknowledge difference in a room, not in an effort to empower it, but to kind of take the air out. Yeah. Really to be, you know, and I I will ask this of, you know, of like my trans clients, right? Where I'll say, you know, I'm, I have all this privilege. I am a, you know, cis dude here. um, And I could never fully understand your experience. What is that like? Right, that I'm sitting here in all this privilege, um, and you're, and and I'm, and I'm your therapist, right? What are some things that might concern you about that? What are some things that make you nervous about that? And it's in an effort to sort of bring us closer together, right? Not to drive a wedge between us, but to be like, I see the difference here, and and I want to use this as a means of getting closer to you and feeling more connected. You. That is so powerful. I just like you know, I think not only does that show like you know let's get this out let's get this out of the way you know right, like let's just right. go straight on into it but like the fact that talk about leading by example it's kind of like you're saying you know I will not ever fully understand what you're going through and so few people have that awareness that that you that you have the the privilege to not be going through that so I'm just blown away by that that's amazing it's basically saying nothing's off the table anything is fair game you know if there's something that's make you uncomfortable let's talk about it right now and nothing is going to scare me the therapist away I am game if you're game to talk about this right now Next page is sponsored by my restaurant, Bay Street Beer Garden. We're located in what was once an old train depot in downtown Charleston, South Carolina. Pretty cool, huh? Our bar and restaurant has beautiful high ceilings, communal tables, and German-influenced high-end bar fare. So it's as close as you can get to an authentic beer hall in the South. At our Bavarian-inspired and Southern-made restaurant, we're all about community, festivities, and uniting the old with the new. 
So go check out our website for updates on all the things, including live music, brunch parties, vendor markets, and all of our other upcoming events. We can't wait to see y'all. Next page is sponsored by Patrick Properties Hospitality Group. It's no secret that Charleston is one of the top wedding destinations in the world. And I'm thrilled to say Patrick Properties is the premier wedding and event company in the area. Since 1997, PPHG has unveiled five of Charleston's grandest properties and estates, faithfully restored and transformed into exquisite venues for special events. At Patrick Properties, we believe that moments matter, and our experienced team is committed to making each one extraordinary with unrivaled service and professional expertise. So if you're looking for a classy venue for your next big event, check out Patrick Properties Hospitality Group on their website or social media. Why do you think that straight, specifically straight guys, because I know a lot of, uh, and I, I do know, now I can't generalize, you know, as much as possible because there are no a lot of straight men that are very, very willing and able to go to therapy, but there are the other side of straight men that do not, or men in general that just don't want to talk. They don't want to talk about it. Why do you think that is? And do you think that, you know, maybe toxic masculinity plays into that? Um, What are your thoughts? I, I think a lot about that question specifically because my knee jerk reaction is to, is to fall into the trap of, like you said, Todd, generalizing and thinking about stereotypes. And then I get into like a confirmation bias thing where I'm like, Mm -hmm. you're right. Men don't know how to talk about their feelings and they're (laughs) always avoiding therapy. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That, that is way too oversimplified. I find that to be, I think that's like a boring take. Like we've heard that before. It's not interesting. It's not saying anything new or important. And so I think what comes up for me, what I think a lot about is, do men feel welcomed to talk about their feelings? Do men feel encouraged to talk about Mm. their feelings? And I don't know the answer to that because I think people in general are not encouraged to ask for help, right? In general, this is a very pick yourself up by your bootstraps mentality that leaves no room for asking for help. Because of course, you have agency, you are in charge of your own life. So yes, you do need to sort of like, get your shit together sometimes. And you just got to do the hard work. And yes, like, for sure, you are in charge of you, you are driving, you are the leading character in your movie, so to speak. However, that can go to an extreme where doing everything by yourself is glamorized and seen as the ideal way to navigate life. And I see that across the board, even with women, right? You've got to be a mom, you've got to be a business woman, you've got to like, and no one can see you sweat. You've got to do it all, have it all, look great while doing it. And so help me God, like, you better have a full beat. You better have makeup on the whole time while you're doing it. And don't be hysterical and and don't don't show emotion. And don't show emotion. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a people issue across the board with how we talk about asking for help. But I, I do think that, or rather what I have seen in terms of like the way little boys are treated, I have seen examples of little boys encouraged to express anger before anything else. And I'm not seeing a ton of 
like helpful follow-up questions like what's going on Mm -hmm. like how are you feeling can you like talk about what's going on right now and I don't see I don't see a lot of examples of the like mental health world being very welcoming to men to straight men I see a lot of men can't talk about their feelings. So blah, blah, blah. So, you know, and if I were on that, if I were on the receiving end of that, I'd be like, well, then fuck therapy. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, okay, well then forget it. I'm not, then I'm not going to talk about they anything. They want me, so, so why would I right. want them? Exactly. You know, I think what, or rather what I like to sort of think about is how I can make it more like inviting, right? And I think a lot of it has to do with the way we, picture therapy in our minds I think a lot of us think one that therapy is for only a a certain type of individual going through a certain type of thing if you know if you experience uh, trauma okay sure you go to therapy for that if you know you lost your partner okay fine you go to therapy for that but it's only for the most intense situations where therapy is kind of like when you take your car in for a tune-up the idea is that you take your car to the mechanic before the engine falls out, Mm -hmm. right? You go and you get it checked on regularly to avoid that from happening. You could take it to the mechanic when the engine falls out, but it's going to be real expensive and it's going to take a lot of work, which is fine. But ideally early intervention is, is the best way to go. Yeah, kind of a preventative, let's, right. yeah, you know, getting your teeth clean. You just gotta, right. you gotta do it. I guess that kind of leads me to, to asking one of the questions I really wanted to get to because it's personally affected me so much is that there are times obviously when people haven't done, or maybe they've done therapy, but there are situations that occur that, that they didn't have any control over or any ability to get help before it happens, but in general, have you treated a lot of people that deal with, with grief and have you seen the different kind of kinds of grief and how do you kind of treat those? Cause as somebody who lost four of my family members in one year during COVID, mm-hmm. it was almost like there wasn't even time to deal with it. It was like one after the other. And then it, it gets to a point where you're like, well, now how do I unpack all this and how the different levels yeah. of grief that come with it? Could you kind of explain how you usually handle that for sure I mean first and foremost I'm so sorry to hear that I think you said it perfectly it feel when it happens like that in like one right after the other it feels exactly like there's just not enough time for for this I, I didn't even have time to process the grief of the previous one now there's this and then on top of that I have my own life I have to tend to I have family I have to tend to where do I fit in processing grief. And I don't know the answer to that. What I do know is that if if you don't deal with your grief, your grief deals with you. Mm. And so it is about being patient with yourself and it is about carving, it's about making the time, not finding the time. You'll never find time to process grief because there's always a million things to do, right? Mm-hmm. That that one will consider uh, a priority and, and, you know, we'll come up with very clever ways of deprioritizing processing our own grief. Well, I'll get to that in a second. Or, well, I have to help this other person deal with what's going on with them or 
what have you. You know, grief runs the gamut in terms of uh, when, when we experience it. So breakups, right, can lead to a lot of grief as well as death of a loved one or any kind of loss, the loss of a job, the loss of, you know, your home, the loss of just any, any major loss can and, and most likely will lead you to experiencing grief. And, you know, when I think about how to help clients with the grief, there's luckily a ton of options. Some of it might include medication, right? Depending on the severity of what's going on. And it doesn't have to be, you know, medication doesn't have to be forever. It can be for the time being as you're sort of coping with what's going on and processing it. Or it can be a lifelong decision, which is just as helpful and just as healthy. And there's absolutely nothing inappropriate or bizarre. That is also a valid choice. And what I try to do first is understand how the client, like what is the story that the client is telling themselves about the loss. I start there. Okay. And usually what I will find is something that is just like not objectively true. It feels true to them, which I want to honor and respect, but it's not an objective truth of their reality. So someone might be dealing with a loss of a loved one. And sometimes what I'll notice is a lot of self-blame going on. Mm. I should have done this. I should have done that. I should have been there. I should have known better. I should have fill in the blank, right? And it's a lot of them just like shooting all over themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, that-, that. <laughs> Shooting all over them. That's great. <laughs> it's, it's all yours. Use it whatever you want. Consider it stolen. <laughs> that is where when I, when I pick up on that, I go, ah, that's where I need to go. That, th- those are the front lines, right? And I'm like, okay, I need to go there. I need to check out what's going on there. And I need to start doing some repair work there and helping them rewrite the story, rewrite the narrative to something that isn't any less painful, but something that feels more manageable and a little bit truer to what is actually, to what actually happened and to what is actually going on. So it starts there. It starts there, like, what's the story? Tell me, you know, you're dealing with this loss. You're really, really upset. You're grieving. You have every right to feel that way. And what's the story? What's the narrative? You know, who's the protagonist? Who's the villain? Who are the key players? Walk me through it. Right. Omar, just to shift gears a little bit, we've talked to several of our guests about narcissism and cluster B and such as narcissistic personality disorder. Do you feel like there has been a rise in narcissistic personality disorder? If so, why? And also, if you believe that you are treating a narcissist or someone with a personality disorder do you call it out so i don't think there's a loaded question (laughs) so no 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 that was good (laughs) so i don't necessarily think there is a rise in personality disorders i think we're getting better at diagnosing it that is my theory i don't there's you know i haven't seen any research that says uh, yep, there's a rock. There's just more people are, you know, being diagnosed with or, or uh, have personality disorders. And we don't yeah. know why I'm not seeing any of that. What I'm seeing are better tools to diagnose and assess 
what is going on. Like, oh, that's, and so this, this happens a lot with clients. A client will talk to me about an ex or a caregiver in their lives. And they will almost as if they're reading from a textbook, they will list these, this is the way that person was. And then I'll go, okay. And, and we're, and was it also like this and like this? And they'll be like, yeah, how did you know? And I'll say, well, I think, you know, your caregiver had a personality disorder and their mind is like, oh my God, that's what that was. I just thought they were a little weird or a yeah. little eccentric, or I thought it was all me. I thought I was the problem. I thought I was the issue. And it just gives them like the proper lens to look through when reevaluating and rethinking that experience. So I think we're getting better at noticing it and, and recognizing what it is mm-hmm. versus folks are just, there's just more narcissists than ever before. <laughs> um, the other thing too is that, and this is for better or for worse, when psychology and pop culture merge or sort of overlap, what we see is the language being very generously used across the board. So for example, someone who takes a lot of selfies on social media is not a narcissist. That is not what a narcissist <laughs> Everybody is, right? stop throwing that around. Okay? <laughs> so, so, you know, so whenever someone's like, oh, look at all these selfies, they're so narcissistic. I'm like, that's, that's not what that is. Yeah. <laughs> Narcissism is a lot more serious and that's like pathology. This is, you know, if you want to say they're, I don't know, self-absorbed, fine. You can yeah. say that, but you know, so, you know, for better or for worse, like once we realize, or once we become familiar with the terminology, we sometimes overuse yeah. it mm-hmm. a little bit. But when it comes to treating someone with a personality disorder, I haven't had a ton of experience with that. And I will say that often, not every time, but often when someone with a personality disorder comes to me, they've already heard. They've either been diagnosed or have been told, I think you might have a personality disorder. So that, so I've lucked out in that way that I'm not like breaking the news, but. (laughs) By the way. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which, and you know, which it's tricky with any diagnosis. Let me, let me also say that any diagnosis, whether it's, clinical depression or personality disorder, I, I, I have to use a little bit of finesse whenever I'm talking about like, here's what I think is going on. So usually what I'll do is I'll start with symptoms. Instead of saying, you have a personality disorder, I'll say, you know, I've noticed that there's a lot of like grandiosity that comes up for you. There's a lot of admiration that you're seeking. I've noticed that you think of people as either all good or all bad, and there's no in-between. Splitting. I notice, uh, yes, yeah, thank you. Yep, splitting. I've noticed that like you're having a really difficult time in relationships and that you hear a lot of the same things, right? And I'll start there to sort of like get their buy-in, to get them to understand like, okay, yeah. And depending on the strength of our relationship, you know, I, I try to work on building trust first before I start throwing diagnoses around. So that way, by the time I say, okay, so there's a name for this, it's called BPD, borderline personality disorder. What do you think? How are you feeling right now? What's it like to hear that? 
Some people experience relief when there is a name to a thing because then there is a there is treatment, there is a prognosis. Other people get really, really upset or feel really, really sad because it feels like now they're being sort of pigeonholed, that they're in a box and they can't get out of it. Like, where are you along that continuum, right? And we talk about that, the experience of hearing me offer a diagnosis. So that way it doesn't feel like I'm just putting a stamp on their forehead, like mm -hmm. personality disorder, and that's that. And I also, with any diagnosis, I also talk about treatment. I also talk about like, this doesn't mean, you know, that you're fucked. Like this doesn't mean, okay, well, good luck. Here's this diagnosis. <laughs> good luck. Yeah. Go put it on your see resume. It. See you yeah. later. Yeah. yeah. See you later. It's like, here's a diagnosis and here's what we can do. And here's what is found to work really, really well. And here are examples of individuals that lead very healthy lives, managing these symptoms and managing these tendencies, just to give them a sense of hope too, which I think is important. Yeah, because you don't, it's not really fun to be told you're, uh, you're disordered in any way, right. but right. it it is, I, I could see it being a big relief for a lot of people. I mean, just personally, I deal with a generalized anxiety disorder and I did not know what that like I didn't have, I knew, I, I knew that I was always didn't feel comfortable in my skin, mm. but I didn't know what it was or what the label mm -hmm. for it was. So it was helpful for I, you. Yeah. So once yeah. I went to, to therapy and this was actually in high school, she was like, you know, I, you know do, you, do you get a lot of stomach aches? How do you like when, when you are, are about to hear bad news or you think you're going to hear bad news? So how, how mm. does that feel in your body? Mm. And that like really, it was like, what like well I guess I never really noticed that right now that you mention it I basically right. always feel like I have the worst kind of butterflies in my stomach and yeah. that's a good therapist yeah I'm, I'm glad you had that experience in high school that, yeah that's a sounds like a really good therapist she was fantastic I actually I had a mourning period when she she retired and I was like no no, no. you can't I need yeah. you for college like yeah. how am I gonna get through college without you yeah. but yeah. um <laughs> But so overall, you know, I think that that's been helpful. And I think that that's kind of why we've wanted to do this podcast so much is that to give uh, experiences, some perspective of these kind of experiences to other people, realize they're not alone, realize that there are, there is hope that there are things that you can do. And, and I think that we've, you know, I kind of have this theory that COVID as a, as a whole has been a massive kind of collective trauma. For, for all of us, it, whether that's, you know, losing your job or, you know, your livelihood in general, like that, that or, or just the fact that you were isolated or, mm -hmm. you know, any number of things. Um, but do you feel the same way? And have you seemed to see kind of an increase in people seeking therapy about that and, and you know, trying to <laughs> figure it out? Yeah. So the two years during lockdown was probably the busiest I've ever been in my entire professional wow. history was that, I mean, which was both great to see, right? Like people like, wow, people are reaching out for help, for professional help. Finally, this yeah. is wonderful. But also it's sad to think about what that means then about the collective about the world like oh this is sad Th 
this is really, really unfortunate. I'm glad so many people are asking for help, but this also means that things are not going well <laughs> in <laughs> general for most people. And that's, that's a difficult thing to have to reckon with. So I, I've definitely seen a rise in people asking for help. And sometimes what COVID did was make it painfully obvious that there was there were things that they needed to work through mm. and the usual things that the individual would use to sort of like distract themselves um like work and social life like all of that was stripped away and we were all just left with our thoughts yeah and we weren't allowed to partake in the usual things we would go to not only to distract but to cope as well Mm -hmm. um, because distraction isn't always a bad thing, but it just made those things, you know, the little voice in your head that starts out as a whisper. I think you need to talk about this. When COVID hit, it was screaming. <laughs> it was a screaming thought like, you need to talk about this with somebody. That's what I recognize as being like the, the process that led people to reach out to me during COVID. I mean, I know you said that it, it's, sometimes it's just a little tiny voice, but did you feel like there was a, a kind of a theme of a lot of the people that were, were coming during that time? It was a lot of existential questions. It was a lot, it, it was like a crisis of um, existentialism. Like, what am I doing? What am I doing? With yep. my life? And why am I doing this? Yeah. And how have I been, how have I allowed myself to be so unhappy for so long wow. and and now what the hell am I supposed to do I'm not you know I'm not 20 or 21 anymore and the idea of changing a career or going back to school it's just not as simple as that right yeah. I have a family that I'm raising or I have obligations or I have this I have I've spent 20 years uh, in this one career in this one field how do I how do I turn this ship around? Like, how is that even possible? Is it even possible? Mm -hmm. And so it's a lot of big questions like that on top of grieving, grief. Um, whether it was, this is the thing that made me realize that relationship wasn't for me, so it ended, or this is the thing that made me realize that job wasn't for me, so I quit. All I, I haven't seen my friends, I haven't seen my family. And it's just like a lot of, loneliness and grief and so much uncertainty that was the big one so much like what is going to happen and what made this unique for me is that for the first time ever every single one of my clients was basically going through the same thing along with me yeah. wow yeah I mean so usually if a client's like Oh, I'm going through a breakup. I can go, oh yeah, well, when I went through a breakup five years ago, here's, you know, here's what happened and he here's what I can draw from. And okay, I'll use, I'll use that and I'll use that method and blah, 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 blah. And I can draw from that experience, but it was, you know, a while ago. So it, there's like a healthy distance and yeah. it feels like, okay. Whereas this time 
I'm like, yeah, I'm going through the same thing. And I have no idea what's going to happen. <laughs> Actually, do you guys have either. any advice? Um, yeah, I know, have you been doing? What have you been doing? Yeah, my Tuesday at two. I'm like, so what have you been doing? Yeah, because, what's up? Uh, <laughs> yeah. You look smiley today. And you I want to be that. So you tell me what your secret is. And so for the first time, we were all going through this thing together. And we were all like, so many of our sessions was just us doing this. Shrugging our shoulders. (laughs) I don't, I don't don't know. (laughs) Yeah. And just talking through, okay, so then how do you navigate uncertainty? What does that, what does that look like? Where are some areas in your life where you can reclaim a little bit of certainty, a little bit of autonomy, a little bit of agency, because that's the best that we can do right now. Those are the major themes that were sort of across the board. And during COVID, did you see your patients online? And were there any like pros and cons to being in person? Yeah, all virtual. The pros being accessibility. It just made it easier for everyone to access therapy. So, you know, someone who could only at one point come in at 6 p.m. on Tuesdays because of their job, they could suddenly see me at 11 right? They could take it, you know, they could see me during their lunch break or whatever, during any kind of break that they have. And so it just made it easier for them to access therapy because of that. So accessibility, you know, was great. Uh, The cons were more, they were more about me, to be honest with you, because most of my clients preferred in person, but were also like, okay with Mm -hmm. virtual so it was really like my shit that was coming up about (laughs) virtual sessions one of the things that I like to take into account during a session is body language so if I'm seeing someone from the shoulders up I'm not seeing what their feet are doing I'm not seeing what their hands are doing there's just so much that I can no longer look at and see and take in as part of my assessment of what's going on and so a lot of that you know, was lost because of virtual sessions. However, one of the awesome things was like, I don't know, there was like a new level of intimacy because a lot of the time I was in the client's home. Oh, so yeah, yeah. it was, you know, it was their home base, right? Which I don't know, it, it adds an interesting layer, an interesting layer of int- intimacy, right? So if I saw like a picture behind them, I could be like, oh, like, who's that? Who's that in that picture? And they'd be like, oh, that's my Nana. She was amazing. This is a picture of us like baking together, right? And so then like that just opened up this other door and this other like way of connecting that was really special and, and lovely. So it wasn't, it wasn't all bad at all, but I, I definitely missed in-person sessions. For yeah, sure. I can imagine like you seem like a very sociable out like extroverted guy yeah, I yeah. mean and and that was probably the biggest thing that owning a restaurant and an event company and obviously now doing things like talking to people on podcasts the isolation of of not being around people like my business partner and I would just go and sit in our empty uh, office at the restaurant and just like sit there and be like what what do we do now like right. we, there was just so it was like a stalemate like it was just like there was mm-hmm. nothing to be done and I think that was like the biggest thing. I don't think people like you said uncertainty but also like no control mm-hmm. whatsoever so you know as being an extrovert myself I I struggled like yeah. seriously struggled but no I, I'm glad that people were 
they're willing to go to therapy and talk those issues out because, you know, whatever gets you you there, you know, like, I I don't think it really matters how or or when or whatever. It's, it's therapy is good for you. And I just want everybody to know that. (laughs) Um, but you know, I had getting a little bit away from that. I know you're also involved with an organization called Brave Tales. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Happily. So there's an organization that I volunteer with called Camp Brave Trails, and it's basically a uh, LGBTQIA leadership youth camp, right? So what that means is that it is a camp that has all of the regular camp fixings, right? Archery, swimming, hiking, with a focus on leadership training and leadership skills building, for um for that that is inclusive for everybody but it does take on more of a queer lens right so there are workshops on like identity development and formation there are workshops on consent there are workshops you know like sex education workshops there are public speaking workshops and then again there's the classics archery and swimming and and all that good stuff and it's an organization that is so near and dear to my heart I knew that once I got my private practice up and running that I wanted to give back in some way to queer youth specifically. And so in my research of trying to figure out, well, like, how could I do that? I came across this organization, Camp Brave Trails, and they have a camp in Maryland and in LA throughout the summer. And yeah, and I started volunteering with them as like the camp therapist, you know, air quotes therapist. I wasn't providing actual therapeutic sessions, but I was having therapeutic conversations mm-hmm. with any of the campers that was that were having a particularly difficult time or uh, were struggling emotionally, mentally for one you know reason or another. And I was just sort of there to provide support to the rest of the camp staff whenever there was a camper that was having a hard time. And then Uh, not too long after that they invited me to join their board and I've been a board member slash volunteer ever since congratulations yeah I wish there was something like that around when I was a kid oh tell me about it yeah (laughs) I guess uh another kind of you know I know if we that would have been amazing I mean I think it would be amazing for anybody that's feeling a little bit like you know you can go to drama camp you can go right. to you know volleyball science camp or whatever camp. science yeah, camp yeah. which i yeah. totally went to so don't i can't believe i just said that um <laughs> the truth comes out <laughs> i know um but you know i think in general like what for people that you know may not necessarily know what is going on with them or you know they don't have no to go to a camp or go you know that they know they have anxiety but they would just really like to find like a therapist in general where how do you suggest somebody like go about doing that the good news is i like to frame it as the good news is that there are lots of ways of being of getting connected to a therapist so if you are lucky enough to have good insurance that covers it, go through your insurance company, call your insurance carrier and ask them, I want a list of therapists in this area. So you can pick a zip code. So it can be close to your office where you work, or it can be close to your home or wherever you want it to be, wherever you're most comfortable and let them know. I want to know who's in network. So that way you don't have to worry about, you know, paying for really expensive therapy. So if you're fortunate enough to have great insurance, I would go that way 
first. Word of mouth is also a really great way. So if you have a friend or a colleague who you're like, damn, they, they, they like have their shit together. <laughs> Ask them. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you're like, wow, this person is aspirational. I love the way they manage conflict. I love the way they talk about self-care. I love the way, right? Ask them like, who's your therapist? Because I, that's who I want to see, you know what I yeah. mean? And get, get referrals that way. And then, you know, there's also psychologytoday.com, which has a massive directory of therapists. Yeah, they some have lots who, of good ones on there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Some who take insurance, some who don't, but most offer a sliding scale. And you can look at a therapist's profile and read up on them, read up on what they specialize in, what kind of population they work with, and then doctors. So if you have a primary care physician, or if there's like any kind of doctor that you work with that you really, really like, they usually have one or two therapists in their back pocket that they like to refer their patients too. Yeah. And so I think those are, those would probably be some of the more uh, popular ways of going about getting a therapist. You can also look into like there's uh, LGBTQ centers in a lot of cities. You can always get a referral from, you know, a center like that. Yeah. And how can people find you? Uh, So I, (laughs) great question. So you can... Oh, yeah. <laughs> Don't tell my other AKA, therapist. AKA, will you be my therapist? <laughs> I'm like, Todd, I will see you Wednesday at three. You know that. Um, <laughs> um, so you can find me, uh, omartorestherapy.com. Just like Google my name and I'll show up. And all my contact information is on my website. So feel free to shoot me a message. You know, my availability varies throughout the you know year but one of the things that I like to do is if I can't see you I like to work with folks to help them find someone that can see them so you know I'm not you're not going to get a sorry I'm full good luck and then see that right I'll you know I'll try to link you to someone who I think would be a good match for you that's awesome we'll also for everybody that's listening we'll put all of you know these links and stuff in our show notes so that people have a way to, to hear about brave tales and uh, vampires and, <laughs> and treating vampires and treating them. <laughs> and you do not have to be a vampire for Omar to see you. That's what I'm starting to gather here. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> that would be cool, but yeah, we don't have wow. to be. We do have a tradition on this show, which is we do a question of the day. Mm-hmm. We ask all of our guests, and our question today is what is the best piece of advice that you have ever received? So I have, I have two. Is that okay if I share it's two? It's perfectly with you? fine. Thank you. Sorry, I'm, <laughs> I'm like very that, guilty yes. of that. <laughs> like making making my own rules. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the first piece is one that I learned in grad school during my training to become a therapist, which I think is relevant for therapists, clinicians especially, but anyone. Uh, which is before you diagnose someone with depression, make sure they're not surrounded by assholes. Oh, yeah, I like that one. So I've taken that with me uh, just professionally, personally. It's one of my favorite pieces of advice. The other one, and this is a bit more broad, which is you cannot hate yourself towards healing. Mm. We are all so hard on ourselves and so critical and so harsh we are sometimes often our worst, you know, critics. And uh, 
Yeah, and, and I don't remember exactly where I heard this, so forgive me, but you cannot hate yourself towards healing. And that's something I take with me everywhere I go as well. That's really a very powerful statement. I think you should just take it credit for it if you don't remember who said it. Who said it. <laughs> Omar Torres, for the first time ever, has just said, you cannot hate yourself towards healing. And we very much agree with it. <laughs> We can't thank you enough for coming on today, Omar. Oh, thank so you. So much fun. I this wish we great. could talk for hours, but we I will easily, yeah. um, when I call you and get in a <laughs> session. Um, <laughs> I, I've got to break it to my other therapist first. I just feel like this is supplemental. Right. right. <laughs> I have Genius. a therapy addiction, Genius. actually, now I'm realizing. <laughs> Um, but yeah, we can't thank you enough. And, and not, like so we much. said, we're going to have all the info for all the listeners out there in our show notes. And we hope you have a wonderful rest of your weekend. And uh, we'll talk to you later. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hope to come back soon. Bye, everyone. All right. Bye. bye. Next page is sponsored by Rogers, Patrick, Westbrook, and Brickman Law Firm, located in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. RPWB attorneys are experienced, respected, and tenacious. The common thread of their work is that they help those who have been wronged. They often lead class action lawsuits and multi-district litigations against large corporations. So they're the ones fighting the big guy. And people tend to notice their attorneys, including my dad and future guest, are highly regarded by both peers and adversaries and were voted best law firm in 2021 in U.S. News and World Report. Their proudest moments are when they help ordinary, hardworking Americans who have been harmed through no fault of their own. So if you need attorneys with experience, innovation, and determination, give RPWB Law Firm a call or visit their website at rpwb.com. All right, Todd. Wow. wow. What'd you think? I mean, you know, I could have talked to him for like 50 hours. I, I, I just find he, all of it so fascinating. And he's I just mean, so good. Personable. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting how he's gotten to a point in his career where he feels it alongside them. That was very yeah. interesting when he, he, so he doesn't like, you know, want to open a jugular after every session. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it seems like he's definitely adapted to uh, dealing with other people's trauma uh yeah. pretty well his stuff on well grief was amazing yeah I mean, I mean that was extremely ugh. helpful for me just to i mean right. even just for the validation that there is no like one exact way to to, right. to handle it but that it that that you really kind of have to look inside and say like well what what am i grieving exactly right. about this and to give yourself some grace you know i think that that it's this kind of this theme i feel like we keep coming across of you know at the end of the day the best way to move forward is you know you can acknowledge these things and then and then kind of get we're all human give yourself some grace exactly. if you regret not spending enough time with with somebody you know that passed or anything like that like yeah get it out talk about it but then you know life goes on and and you only have one right. life to live so exactly. he just he just had this air of optimism that i just really 
was drawn to. Yeah, he was great. The other thing that he was talking about was the disorders. Like the head loved his quote, if, you know, don't it, before you diagnose someone with depression, make sure they're not surrounded by assholes. I thought that was yes. brilliant. It made me think, and I also loved him talking about slave trails. I really, really wish that had been around when I was a kid because I struggled so much growing up in Charleston. And when I was sent to a child psychologist, they actually diagnosed me with gender identity disorder. I was just you a told me that, and I still yeah. cannot. I can't believe that. That. How old were you? I, I got. I had been like four. That's, four see, that's old, just nuts to me. Maybe. Yeah, and it's it's crazy because I didn't even know about it until the, the last few years. I found some paperwork, and I was like, "Mom, what is this?" And she was oh, like, "Yeah, I didn't listen. They they didn't understand. I didn't listen to them. <laughs> they didn't sound right." That was a bizarre uh, thing. But, but I mean, like, that's, that's, that was the 80s. And that was, I'm dating myself. That was the 80s in, in Charleston, South Carolina. You know, God bless that child psychologist, but it was very misinformed. Yeah. Well, I, I actually listened. He's, he's got some interviews on YouTube that they were discussing brave uh, tales and that, that they actually allow people that are not, you know, queer or gay to attend just to be like supportive or even just, you know, that want to know more. So, you know, this isn't something that's just for LGBTQ. I mean, I, I, in a way would love to send my kids there to be like, look, they also play archery. Like stop being such a bigot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, okay. Let me ask you the question of the day. What's the best piece of advice you ever received? You know, I got to say, literally the best, and I did for once, I only have one. Um, oh my God. I know, everybody, <laughs> just calm down, it's going to be okay. But the best piece of advice was honestly from my therapist, that when I, the one I was seeing, or have still continued to see, but during my divorce, and it was that guilt is a choice. And, and I know that might sound kind of like, oh, well, you know, guilt's a feeling, you can't really control it. She kind of made me see that, you know, that nobody's can make you feel guilty, that that is something that you internally kind of put on yourself that, you know, like at the time I, I felt like, well, I need to try to work this out because I feel guilty for my kids. Like, I don't want my kids to grow up in a broken home. And, and she would always say, well, you know, you're, you're talking about guilt again. Like guilt is a choice. You don't need to feel guilty about that because you know you know all the reasons why you shouldn't and I think that that you know I, I still kind of live by that whenever I start feeling like oh I feel guilty that I wasn't home for dinner and time with my kids today because of work it, you know that at the end of the day you're not helping anybody by feeling guilty like you just it, and it's very different from shame I mean shame is is something that is kind of is much more deep-seated guilty right. is kind of like uh, in a way, the way she kind of described me is a little bit self-absorbed. Like you're just kind of uh, obsessed that you're feeling this way when it, when you think it's about other people. But really, it's just you trying to kind of be like, well, I feel really bad about this. I don't know. I just think it, it's a it's a good thing to keep in mind whenever you start to feel guilty. Quote unquote. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. I've never thought about guilt like that. How about you? What's the best oh. piece of advice you've received? Honestly, it was from my mentor in uh, in New York City uh, by the man of name, and his name is uh, Guy Stroman. He created a show called oh. Forever Platt. He's a director. He is just the epitome of somebody who I, I look up to, and I tend to over share with people that 
might not necessarily have my best interests at heart. And mm -hmm. so I think he saw me doing that to a cast member one day when we were doing a show, um, just, you know, venting about stuff that was going on in my personal life. And he pulled me aside and he said, I want you to listen to me. Take this with you. Keep your own counsel. And for me, whenever I'm starting to share with somebody now that may not be a real friend, they just want to know what's going on because they're nosy or they're gossipy or whatever. I just remember that piece of advice. Keep your own counsel. I used to think, oh, if I don't share this, I'm not being truthful. I'm not being honest. I'm not being authentic. But yeah. it's, it's okay to keep some of your own shit private. It's okay. Yeah. Like you're allowed. Yeah. And it took me a long time to, to uh, adopt that, you know. Yeah, I think that actually, so I lied, I have a second one, and it's really just, uh, just <laughs> no, it's a combo, I think, of both of the, these things, both of our, our statements is that, you know, you don't deserve, like, not everybody deserves a response, or deserves to hear, or, you know, that you don't need to respond to every email from your ex or that you need to address Girl. every single thing you, you know silence is its own message you know so i think that silence can be deafening yeah it's look at us just screaming. coming up with little yes. uh, we're gonna so after this we're gonna start a pinterest page y'all can follow <laughs> you know bumper stickers to follow from us. <laughs> <laughs> all right laura well this is what this was a, a very impactful episode i think and um yeah. i'm so excited we got to talk to him aren't you he's Thank just you. so great Fun. even if it's like you know i know everybody else like this and kind of depressing topics but it's enlightening and it shows yeah. that you know there's there's always a way to get out of exactly. whatever rut you're in or whatever. So I had a fabulous time. I love you. I love doing love this. Too. And we'll talk to y'all next time. Bye, y'all. <laughs>